0: Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in weekly to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive.
1: Welcome, everybody, to uh, the Family Biz Show. My name is Michael Columbus. I'll be your host today. Um, from Family Wealth and Legacy in uh, sunny Rochester, New York. Okay, three days a week, sunny. Three days a year, sunny. Um, <laughs> today, today, I'm really excited to be joined by Paul Hood and Don Parkhill. And I just appreciate the two of you coming on. It was nice. We did a... Uh, We got together for a pre-show, kind of get together, you know, what are we going to talk about? Man, you guys are so incredibly intelligent about this world of buy-sell agreements. I can't wait to share with people and help them figure out, is is your buy-sell agreement any good? So what I'd like to do is just take a second and have each of you um, introduce yourselves, tell us about your journey a bit and, and how you got here. And um, you know, I guess to uh, share with people uh, how they, you know, how you can be reached in the future if they like what they're hearing today. So, Paul, why don't you kick us off?
0: All right, I am a recovering tax lawyer. Uh, I practiced uh, tax and primarily estate planning for high net worth individuals for about twenty years until a little event called Hurricane Katrina happened, and I was down in Louisiana at the time, and uh, the economy basically disappeared. I mean, it was gone. Um, So I moved, and uh, I moved to Napa, California, but I did not want to be a lawyer there, because I didn't want to sit for their bar so I just started consulting and speaking and writing, and now I've written, well, I'm working on my eighth book right now, uh, and I primarily do speaking, writing, and consulting. I mean, that's really my life today, and it's a it's a great life, uh, but um, I guess the experience of all of the years, I mean over 30 years now of of high-end estate planning, um, it really, it's it's made a difference for me because of the experience that I have. Um, Buy-sell agreements are very personal to me because my family got the short end of the stick on a typical Book value buy sell agreement. Um,
1: I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna ask you to pause on that one because that's what okay. I wanna I wanna jump right into when we get started. Sure. Um, and you're being very modest. I've read some of your books. A matter of fact, uh, one of your co-authors and I have had an, a, a, a conversation. We're gonna bring you back in to, with Emily to talk about some blended family estate planning issues okay. someday somewhere down the I road. Do sure. And, uh, Um, Paul speaks an awful lot for Lineberg Information Services, which is, you know, industry-wide when it comes to estate planning and tax, just one of the top-notch organizations. So um, appreciate your humbleness, but uh, me oh my, you are uh, up there in the the levels of um, professionals and experts in our arena. So thank you for joining us, Paul.
0: Uh, You're too kind, but thank you.
1: Don Parkhill and I go back many years, um, and uh, as do Paul and I. But you know, it's uh, just fun to get to bring a friend on and um, talk about things that we love to talk about. So, Don, you know, take a take a minute and introduce yourself.
2: Well, thank you, Mike. It's a real honor and a pleasure to be here with you and Paul. I appreciate you putting this together and asking me to participate. So, like Paul, I'm a recovering attorney and uh after law school i went to work for price waterhouse back then it was part of the big eight and from there i went to work for a law firm in columbus and uh, i just loved our clients they all came in the back door with their jeans and flannel shirts and they were the salt of the earth and they were just very very successful and it was all because of their hard work and so uh, i really appreciate what they had done my father was an entrepreneur of sorts so uh I just really enjoy working with the small business owner, the family-owned business, and uh, from there the journey was. Uh, I, I didn't want to continue to practice law, and started my own financial firm. Bought a couple businesses, and from there uh, the journey's been uh, John Warnick's Pur- Purposeful Planning Institute collaboration and uh, Custom Wealth Advisors and legacy group out of Boston. So it's it's been a long and very journey, but it's really opened my eyes to the planning that's available for folks out there. And as Paul mentioned, you know, the 30, 35 years plus doing this, um, we really bring a lot to the table because we've just seen so much good and sometimes not so good. So, but um, it's great to help these folks out. I just love it.
1: Awesome. Thank you both for being here. So Paul, you started jumping in to this story, and I can't wait for you to share this because this is whenever it comes from a personal nature, it's always stronger. And I, you know, I know that because of working with my father, that's the thing that really blended me or, you know, magnetically attracted me to working with family businesses. Um, So tell us about the story of your family
0: and the buy sell agreement. Well, I will tell you that I love to pull for the underdog. And family businesses, even though you've got some in the Fortune 100, family businesses are underdogs. There are lots of laws that are stilted against family businesses. When I was a a young child, my grandfather was forced out of a company that he had co-founded. Um, at the same time, my uncle was fired from that company, and my grandfather, it, it triggered uh, the buy-sell agreement in the uh, Articles of, of Incorporation, and it was for book value. This was a business that had mm-hmm. been going on for 44 years at the time, so there was a lot of goodwill that didn't count. And, uh, but you know how karma is. Uh, in the end, the son of my grandfather's partner who fought, who basically was behind forcing him out, uh, ran the company after that into the ground. So we were the only family that made any money or came away with any money because that business went into chapter seven, unfortunately. Uh, it was sad. It was sad for me to watch that, but we all knew what was going to happen. Um, and uh, it just, you know, it breaks your heart. But uh, buy sell agreements are very important documents. I I look at them as as you know. Some people call them the business prenup, but I don't think that's accurate. I think that a that a buy sell agreement is more like a business's will, last will and testament. Because there's going to be some event that triggers that buy-sell agreement. And if you, have, if you don't have one, then you're, you're basically the business equivalent of dying intestate. Right. And we all know the problems that brings. And uh, yeah, my, my next book is on buy-sell agreements for the layman. Uh, it's actually at the publisher right now uh being uh developmentally edited which is an interesting process but no it's so i always had a little chip on my shoulder when i worked on a buy sell agreement because all of the parade of horribles that could go wrong stayed at the fore of my mind and i just was bound and determined to not let that happen to anybody on my watch
1: right I love that. You know, it's, it's funny that you say that because I'm working with a family right now that, you know, one of the family members was asked to leave and, and rightfully asked to leave. There was nothing wrong with that piece of it. You know, it was, you know, if you don't play nice in the sandbox, that makes sense.
2: Wow.
1: Um, the the hard part though, is that there was a difference whether that person was fired or they left, you know, they were the ones that left. The buy-sell agreement treated it differently, but it still all came back to like you were talking about book value. And so, you know, they've got one company that it's an asset heavy company. So it's depreciated, like there's no tomorrow, but it's worth, you know, fair market value is so different than what the book value is. And I just feel really bad because you know that he's not being treated fairly. The family's feeling like, you know, in their heads, because of the attorneys that they are dealing with saying, we're going above and beyond to treat you fairly, because we're giving you the, you know, as if, you know, we fired you numbers, not the numbers, you know, as if you left and you're the one that said you wanted to leave. And at the end of the day, I'm with you. I don't think book value is a fair, you know, number to be working with.
0: Right,
1: Don, when you were, when, when we talked before, you had an example, you know, of, of a family. Talk about that for just a second. Again, this all sets the stage for why these things are so important.
2: Yeah, we were talking about uh, fundamental fairness and you, know, you, you show up to work every day with these folks and whether it's a prenup or last will and testament, I, I love that Paul. Um, someday it's gonna be, it's gonna come to fruition. And so it's important that everybody be treated fairly, open communication, et cetera. And so, this group of individuals put together a buy sell agreement. They had the attorney come in and he talked with them, and it was over several meetings. And they uh, said, Well, this is the way we're going. And one of the younger partners went in and said to the senior, I I don't think this is fair. And for these reasons, the senior partner said, Okay, we'll take that into account. And they came back and said, Well, this is the agreement. He says, You know, I don't think this is fair. And they said, well, this is this is what we voted on. This is the way it's going to play out. He said, okay, fine. So a few weeks later, the younger partner came in and said, here's my letter of resignation. They said, well, you can't retire. And he said, yeah, the agreement says the first one out gets this price. I like the price. I'd rather you pay me than I pay you. So I'm leaving. And he did. He left. He was sat out for three years, according to the non-compete. And he went back in business and competed against them very successfully. And it was just... A matter of fairness,
1: right? And it's you know a lot of times one of the things that we talk about, and I think both of you do exactly the same thing, is let's take a look at that agreement, and let's look at how it's gonna you know pan out when these things happen, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah, uh, and, and to Paul's point about the last will and testament, you know we're used to the diagrams to show people, well, if this happens, it goes to this trust. If this happens, it's, it's divided, whatever. And most people like that because it's simple. It's on one page. Very seldom do I see anybody do that with a buy-sell agreement so that they understand exactly where it goes how much they're going to get if this happens, if X happens, if Y happens. So the simpler we can make these things, because you know it's interesting how our clients are so successful and so few of them, I, they don't want to do this. That's why they hire us, right? And they're right. lawyers and so forth they don't want to get down in the weeds they want the simplification and so it's important that they understand and have folks that can put it on one piece of paper and say here you go and they say that's not really what we talked about you know the devil's in the details right paul
0: oh you bet i tell people all the time Before I even read your buy-sell agreement, I say, do yourself a favor and conduct a fire drill. Make believe that a triggering event, you pick it, occurs. Now read your agreement and trace it all the way through to the end. Mm -hmm. And people say, my gracious, uh, procedurally, this doesn't even make sense. You know, I I love, I mean, a classic example is when they need the appraisal done in 30 days. (laughs) I mean, no business appraisal. I, I mean, I've commissioned hundreds of business appraisals in my career. The fastest I've ever seen one done was probably 50, 60 days and that was rushing it. Right. You
2: know, so, have you, ever, have you ever had a client be able to get the appraiser all the information in
0: 30 days? Well, and and no, no, that's <laughs> right. And are not not all of the material information? They like to hold out things, so you really sort of have to play uh, sleuth and bird dog with your client and make them turn over the material information to the appraiser because otherwise the appraisal won't be worth anything because it'll. Omit material information
1: mm-hmm. agreed, so what, you know you said worth i'm going to t- take from that word, and we're going to roll this into one of the things that we talked about was you know why using valuation formulas is a fool's errand, and you know when we were when we talked before, we talked about book value and how that doesn't always that's not really fair for many many times when you're going through these things. But, you know, so oftentimes you'll see a formula is written into the, into the buy-sell agreement. Let's talk about that. What's the, what are your issues with having a formula in the buy-sell agreement?
0: Well, uh, for starters, when I was a young lawyer, I thought that I could draft a good formula for a buy-sell agreement, one that was insusceptible of manipulation and i learned pretty early on that you couldn't do that every formula can be manipulated and people when they when the when the ox goes in the ditch people take people take their sides and they're going to do whatever's best for their side and uh, that's why, I mean, Don's point about fundamental fairness and by, I spent as much time protecting the minority owners as I did protecting the majority owners who are often were my clients. Cause I used to tell them if this thing is not fair, then you're going to have a problem and it's going to cost you it you may win but it's going to cost you a lot of money it's going to cost you a lot of stress heartache aggravation all on unpaid time when you're also still trying to run your business right. so it's a it, fundamental fairness is is at the core of a buy sell agreement
2: and to that point about protecting the minority interest and, and so forth, you know, one of the things I often see is that the two partners will say or three or whatever, you know, we get along famously, if you, you know, if there's some discrepancies in their document, it's not an issue. It's just, it's not an issue because we'll get this resolved. We just get along. And I say, okay, that, that's fine. To Paul's point, pick something that you think could blow up, but What if one of them gets taken out by the truck? You're no longer dealing with him. You're dealing with his attorney. And the attorney's position is to take care of the family. And they say, well, Michael would have wanted it this way. Well, we don't know that because Michael's not here. My job is to follow the document. Well, that's not what we intended. Uh, Sorry.
0: Right. And so...
2: You know, it's it's one thing for everybody to have fundamental fairness and get along while they're all here. But when one of them isn't, that's an entirely different situation because now we're not dealing with the same players.
0: That's why it's so critical when everybody is is still in agreement and still Mm -hmm. on good and speaking terms. To hash out, that's why I developed that one page because you mentioned one page and simplicity. Well, I'm a slave to simplicity. When I was the trustee of a very large trust and I used to hire, I don't know, 50 to 70 lawyers a year to manage the bit because it was a trust full of various business interests and real estate and I mean, you name it. And I used to say, if you can't say it on a page, you don't understand it well enough to talk to me about it. And that, that buy-sell agreement with the, with the two axes, one being the triggering events, the possible triggering events, the other axis is the response to that triggering event. And I used to give that to clients and let them check. Yeah, okay, if this happens, yeah, I want this to happen you know and you what people find is the one size fits all doesn't work you know and too often you run into a lawyer who finds a good what the lawyer believes is a good form every form is drafted for a particular purpose and if your client doesn't fit within the confines of that purpose I mean, it's an accident waiting to happen. Right. And too often it does.
1: Agreed. So when when you're pegging, you know, valuation inside of a buy-sell agreement, what are some of the factors? What are some of the things that you like to see talked about inside of that agreement?
0: Well, um, for starters, I am... I'm a big proponent of fair market value. Um, I believe that fair market value is is fundamentally fair. Now you say, well, wait a minute, that comes with valuation discounts. Yes, it does, but those mirror the true economics of the marketplace. And um, now what you see in some agreements though, is, okay, you pick an appraiser, I pick an appraiser, and then those two appraisers pick an appraiser, and the question is, who's paying for all these appraisers? (laughs) Well, I drafted, I, I, I learned to draft it, basically saying, okay, if we're gonna do that, the two appraisers that each side picks can agree among themselves that one of them will do it, or they'll pick a third appraiser. there will be one appraisal and uh people you know when when they when they get the bill for the appraisal uh they understand what i was talking about because you know evaluation for a an operating company today is i mean on the low end seventy five hundred dollars and there's not many of those they're more you know for a typical uh, family-owned business somewhere between ten and fifteen thousand dollars for a, for a business appraisal today. That's any good, right? You know, if, you know, you can go on the internet and they'll tell you they can sell you a an appraisal for you know three ninety five, but I, it's going to be worth what you paid for it. Yeah. Agreed.
2: I, I like I like Paul's approach um, with the three two picking one. My, my preference, and I think Paul's is as well, is that is to have it appraised today by somebody you know and trust and have that person continue to do it. That,
0: so that is you, my favorite approach. So You're that right.
2: you've established value, you've established the firm, and if something happens to me, my lovely bride knows it's in good hands, the appraiser's working for everybody, they've done it before, yada, yada, yada. And that way everybody gets to know the players. And it's all spelled out.
0: Well, you know, clients a lot of times will push back Mm -hmm. on, why do we need to appraise it now? And, of course, you've got the original objection, which is, how can somebody come in here and tell me and know more about my business and its worth than I do? And I say, well, it's because you're not in the business of appraising and you don't have the training. You know, most, I found I have found that very very few business owners have any real idea about what their business interest is truly worth. They have they either have some pie in the sky thought about it, or they undershoot it by a good ways. Yeah. And I've had clients on both ends of that spectrum. So yeah. get it appraised and then. I, I tell and, and when clients wanted to balk about paying for an appraisal, I said, I said, if we get a good appraisal, I said, this is the most valuable management tool you will ever get because it will identify your competitors, it will talk about it will talk about trends in your industry, it will talk about trends locally in the economy nationally. uh, There's an awful lot that these people can interpret your numbers and really get underneath them because a good business appraiser, the first thing they're going to do is get command of the numbers. I remember one appraisal in a buy-sell agreement The appraiser, we weren't in the meeting an hour yet, and the appraiser had already treed the accountant in an audited financial statement of having to make a, a mid seven figure adjustment to EBITDA. And it was all because of the persistent questions that the appraiser kept asking that they couldn't answer. Wow. And the CPA couldn't answer him either, and he was he was the audit partner. So that's why that's why it is just mission critical to to have a good appraisal. And if I was personally in business, you know, if I was in a business that required appraisal, uh, I would certainly do that and maintain it every year. It's almost like an ESOP. Now, ESOP has to have an appraisal every year. Mm-hmm. right? So, you know, and and the clients that I had that had ESOPs didn't mind it. That they, they yeah. didn't mind it because because this was work that was ongoing. It was just like the accountants doing the audit or the review work. Uh, it was it was just part of the routine. Love it. You know, it's
1: it's interesting. You know, some of the points that you bring up the fact that the buy-sell agreement really is also market research. I think that's such a great point that is often overlooked. And, you know, as I'm working with a lot of the family-owned businesses today, we're talking about strategy and, you know, what is your go-to-market strategy and what are you doing? And, you know, part of that, you know, really good work comes from understanding your competition at a level that they don't understand themselves and looking for all the services where your competition is really good. And when you map that out and can look at it, all of a sudden it might show this blank space. You know, the, that blue ocean strategy just appears because here's where all of my comp- competitors are. And here's where they're really good. But just utilizing, you know, you have to get a, you know, an evaluation anyways, utilizing that information and having a third party bring that
0: to you is pretty powerful thank mm-hmm. you Well, it is and it's a bonus because every, you see everybody thinks they're paying for the number but that's not the value of a business appraisal yeah it's so much more than that agreed so one of the other things that we talked
1: about was that there's you know done any anything else on
2: valuation or did you now, it's just such an integral part of, of your overall planning, as Paul mentioned, because our our clients aren't in the business of buying and selling businesses, of appraising them, they can be way off the mark. And if this is an integral part of their retirement plan, they've got a huge gap. Yeah. And they're saying, well, gee, I guess I'm going to have to work X number of years because I thought it was worth whatever. And now it's worth, you're telling, you know, it's now it's worth this because they're going by EBITDA right well okay it's it's a multiplier of x well I know John down the road got four times six times eight times whatever well yeah but John had a hundred clients all paying why you've got four clients you lose one of them it's an issue right right uh yeah so I said you know that multiplier doesn't really apply to you and so you know this the 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 fact that they get under the hood and they can tell you things about your operations and and you know 70% of your employees are over the age of 65. Does that raise a flag? Mm, it might to a potential buyer. Yeah, we've been talking about hiring some more people, but they don't want to retire. And so it just brings up so many different things that it's as Paul said, it's just not the final number. It helps raise the hood. And you've got an independent party telling you things about your business that you've just had your blinders on. Love you it. know,
0: Michael Michael Gerber wrote a book called *The mm-hmm. E Myth*, and he made the point to that I subscribe to immediately. That is, you need to spend as much time working on your business, yes. as you work in your business. That's and the buy sell agreement is a key part of on your of working on your business because, as Don pointed out, the um, the whole the whole area of your unique niche. I've had have had appraisals come back where people i the appraiser identified a niche that wasn't being filled in the marketplace. That the company jumped into and and it became a company worth a few times what it was worth before right so that's why i think as a management tool a business appraisal is one of the most valuable th- you can hire all the consultants you want but if you get a good business appraiser that does a full business appraisal and gives you a freestanding report uh that report is is comprehensive and I mean they look at so many a myriad of things and uh you know my first book that I wrote was on business valuation and I wrote it with a business appraiser uh nine years ago that John Wiley published and uh uh yeah it you just and and a lot of this stuff is common sense y'all You know, it really is, but as they often say, common sense is not so common sometimes.
1: Yeah, but you know, it's we get in the mode of doing, you know, and Mm -hmm. and when you're busy doing, you know, and, and making things happen day to day in the business, we sometimes you just don't know, you know, people don't know what questions that they should be asking as they're going through this. They know which questions to ask their customers so that they can get more sales and, you know, their clients to, to turn more revenue. But when you start looking internally, you know, that's what a coach is for. And that's, you know, at the end of the day, that's the difference between the, the, the three of us and many of the, you know, attorneys that are out there, you're more on the coach side of things. Though you're technically in, you know, very, very you know, apt at what you do, you coach people through these things and that makes a big difference. And you ask the, the right-
0: coaching one. and you know, count, the counseling part of practicing law uh, is paramount. People used to ask me what I did, people who didn't know me, and I'd say I practice psychotherapy without a license. Uh, <laughs> Because in family businesses, there's, an, and in estate planning, there's a lot of truth in that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Agreed. So we've talked about before,
1: there's, you know, several, you know, significant issues with buy sell agreements. And, you know, the the kind of the hook we put out there is which one of these are in yours? Don, do you want to talk about, you know, some of the issues? Um, I know we pointed out some of them already, but are there, you know, what other issues come up inside of buy
2: sell agreements? Well, there's a, there's several that, that um, fall in the area of life insurance and one is the funding and how much insurance to buy. Usually the, you know, if they get the appraisal, that's not an issue. Then the question is what type of insurance? Do you buy a term? or you buy a permanent product or some type of permanent, whether it's true guaranteed to 100 or guaranteed for 35 years or whatever. You know, time flies. And Paul mentioned his experience doing this in the number of years and so forth. And the next thing you know, you turn around, you've been doing this for X number of years, 30, 35 years, and you're still working. And these guys thought they were gonna be retired 10 years ago And and they're not. And and I can't tell you how many times I've seen where the term has expired and now they got to re-up the term and it's god-awful expensive. And they're saying, well, we're not going to pay that. Okay, so what's the alternative? So just to walk through that and and have an understanding of how this plays out. If they're going to guarantee they're going to retire in X number of years, then fine, term. You're you're going to guarantee your partner that on this date, you're out here. So, you know... explore that and then if they do have life insurance what happens if one of us retires what happens to the policy on my life you get to keep that do I have to give you yours back or sell it to you what's going to happen along those areas Um, another area I'm curious on your thoughts on this both of you where dad is in a dad's a partner two or three other guys whatever and Junior's coming up through the ranks. Junior doesn't have any stock. There's no plans to give junior stock for the next three, five years. So dad gets taken out of the picture. Does junior they, does Junior have a call right? And who's going to make that decision? It's somewhat like a trust protector. Paul's point of last rule and testament, Do you put a trust protector in the buy sell agreement at the independent counsel, the appraiser, the CPA, somebody says, you know what? We think junior has shown his stripes and he's entitled to buy X percent. He has to buy a fair market value. So those are the things that, you know, fathers want their sons in business with them. But a lot of those buy sell agreements don't speak to that. So I'm just curious what you folks see.
0: Well, um, I agree. On the life insurance side, there's another interesting issue, and that is, is the life insurance counted as part of the value of the company, Mm -hmm. or is it simply viewed as a pass-through and not any impact on value? True. And that's that's the way I think it it should be done, because that was the purpose of the life Mm -hmm. insurance, was to fund a buyout. But it makes a big difference, especially if you have a big policy. It might it might, really inflate the value of the interest. Mm-hmm. Um, so you got, you, you definitely, the buy-sell agreement needs to speak to that, as well as, as you mentioned, Don, uh, I think people whose policies are no longer needed should have a first dibs at that policy on their life yeah, i mean it's fundamentally fair you know going back to that point so sure yeah
1: and that's that old saying isn't it uh, the last to die wins
0: right mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. um it, there's there are so many issues with buy sell agreements that you know we we could talk about them for a long time i think one of the other things is you know what happens if we disagree if you don't have that written out inside of the, the agreement there, you know a lot of times we've got the death we've got disability in there we might even have divorce in there but you know oftentimes you know if we disagree that's not written into the into the buy sell agreement what this is triggering for me right this second is it's great if you know somebody that's listening to this call says, ooh, I'm just gonna call Paul Hood up and ask him to you know, consult on my stuff or Don Parkill or Mike Columbus to come and consult you know, as we're doing this work. But you know, what if they have an attorney that they're working with? How do, they, how do you know whether your attorney that's working on your buy-sell agreement knows this stuff? It's a question we didn't talk about before. How would you determine that?
0: By asking questions of the lawyer. I believe that you ferret out the information, not by simply listening to what they say, because a lot of people sound like they know what they're talking about. But when you start asking them things like, well, how many buy-sell agreements have you drafted or reviewed? You know, How often do you fool with triggering events in buy-sell agreements? Um, and if they say, well, we've done a few, you know, we do them mostly for businesses, but uh, no, I, I, and you find they don't have a lot of experience on the trigger side. And to be honest, yeah, that's why I think the fire drill with the buy-sell is so important. I mean, everybody wants to send me their buy-sell agreement to review And I say no, 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 before you pay me to do that, why don't you read the agreement, pretend that somebody dies or somebody gets divorced and and conduct a fire drill, read the agreement and play it out all the way through. And and people come back and they say, my gracious, this is not what we want. And that's that's the answer I would say 80% of the time, at least in my experience. Right. Um, or they find out that the procedural mechanism that the lawyer built in is nonsensical. It makes sense when you read it, but not when you apply it.
1: Thank you. Don, real quick, when you're talking about these triggering events, um, I don't do you, you know when you're going through... You know, a lot of times if you, if you Google you know, buy sell agreements, there's, you know, things out there that talk about the four Ds. Um, I think there's more, I think you'd agree that there's more than four triggering events Mm
0: -hmm. inside of
1: a a buy sell agreement. What are some of the other triggering events that people, you know, it's, that would be a good question. I would think to the attorney, you know, to ask him to say, you know, when you're writing a buy sell agreement, how many triggering events are, are you going after? I think what Paul, you know, Paul had it right. You know, he's got that one pager, but what are some of the other triggering events?
2: Well, one that we don't often see is um, what if you're no longer able to to participate in that type of business? So if you're an insurance agent and you lose your license or uh, if you're a pharmacist and you lose your license, so how how does that play out? If you get a divorce and my wife gets X number of shares of mine, Do the other partners have the right to buy her out? And then do I have a right to buy my stock back? I was not at fault in the divorce. And so is it fair to me that I lose X percent of the business to her and those guys get to buy, it? my partners get to buy it? So should I have a right to buy that back? And so um, you don't see this very often, but... um, what about lack of uh, something that, that brings harm to your reputation? So you've got a premier partner and he is drunk and disorderly, not once or twice, but three or four times. And, you know, because he's a good guy in the community, you know, there's no charges brought, but everybody knows about it. Do you want him or her to be a part of your firm? And so if the decision is that person goes, and they're bringing in quite a bit of revenue, but you just really don't want them around, are you gonna pay them 100% for their share or are they gonna get a 30% discount because they've brought some negative connotation to your firm? So we don't see um, very often where different triggering events are paid different amounts. It's usually, this is the price, this is what you get paid, and so long so um, it's not right or wrong it's what do you think's fair do you think right. it's fair that he get hundred percent or should he get 60% or 80% or whatever
1: love it yeah no that's really something that people need to think about I think one of the other things and Paul I want to ask you about this is when we talk about you know XYZ corporation comes into town and they want to buy us for $10 million and I'm, you know, we're 50, 50 partners. And I think that's, you know, more than a fair offer. And my partner's sitting there saying, there's no way I would sell for that. How do you rectify those kinds of situations?
0: Well, in the equal partner setting that, that is difficult. There may have to be some type of sale before the sale um to clear up that 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 dispute um one of the things i wanted to say about the divorce thing is the way that i used to always draft it was the lawyer i mean the um the owner who gets divorced has the prior right to those shares and i always made spouses be not just acknowledge the agreement to be parties to the agreement. And let me tell you something, clients push back on that. I don't want to involve him or her, but let me tell you something, I insisted on it so far. Now, I I haven't practiced law since August 29th, 2005, the day Hurricane Katrina hit. And I'm gonna tell you that I've had three clients so far years after i did work for them call me and say i got divorced and thank you for forcing my spouse to sign that agreement yeah because it, it's made a difference in my life and th- those are three people who thought enough to contact me to thank me right One of those there's got to be more out there who just that didn't occur to them
2: Paul, I'm curious, did you primarily start doing that because of community property?
0: In part for community property, but I believe that for, I mean, the way that a buy-sell agreement deals with divorce, you know, in many states today, we have equitable equitable distribution. Mm-hmm. And it may be that the spouse is going to get some percentage of value, but I never let the owner lose control of that interest. I, I was I was firm against that because the the spouse wasn't part of the company, and uh, you know it may be that the the owner has to take less of other assets to to compensate. Mm-hmm. but they usually don't want to lose and certainly don't want to have to buy their interest back from their partners. If, if you give the partner a, uh, a chance, another, I'll tell you this too. Another event that, that often comes up is when a, when a, uh, an employee owner, uh, resigns and intends to compete. And let's say that, you know, non-compete agreements vary greatly in their effectiveness but um, if there is a put on the part of the of the uh, shareholder who's leaving you're basically financing their competition by paying them their interest right so I had different terms for payout of those interests, and sometimes a different price. Sometimes a different price. So there's a lot. It's there's a lot of counterintuitive things in a buy sell agreement. And once again, I go back to my because I'm a pretty simple country kid, and and I believe in in common sense and that fire drill usually gets to the bottom of most problems because yeah. when people are forced and now they have some skin in the game now they've actually read their agreement because most of the time they haven't they signed it but they didn't read it and that mm-hmm. violates the old you know Spanish proverb you know uh, drink nothing without seeing it poured sign nothing but without reading it first <laughs>
1: So true. Um, in the world of buy sell agreements, you know, some terms are thrown around out there um, like Russian roulette or sealed envelope. Don, do you want to, you know, talk about those for a little bit? Where do they come into play?
2: Well, it goes back to the partners that aren't getting along and somebody's going to buy and somebody's going to sell. And the question is if, if it's the Russian roulette, then, I'm gonna give you a price and if you don't like it, then I'm gonna buy you for that price. If you like it, you're gonna buy me for the price. The problem is when we're fighting, nobody wants to put the price on the table first. So if we're gonna have that kind of provision, my preference would be a sealed bid and we hand them to each other and the cards fall where they may because We've got to be reasonable because I could be selling it to you for that price. And right. The same applies to Russian roulette, but you got to get somebody to move on that provision, whereas with the sealed bid, time date, here it is.
0: Got it. I'm Love not it. a big fan of any of those, whether you call them Mexican standoff, Russian roulette, uh, uh, Dutch auction. I mean, there's all sorts of ways mm-hmm. to do this. And, and my book goes into all of that. But from my standpoint, it's still going to come down to, to fundamental fairness. And if the business is going to continue, I mean, it, the, the first question is, do they want the business to continue if they can't get along? You know, let's cash in what we've got and just shake hands and call it a day. Right.
2: That would be the optimal option, yes. But if they both want it and they want to continue, but without right. the other, then 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 where do you go? Right.
1: Yeah. Love it. So walk through. We got a couple minutes left here. I want to make sure that we cover everything that we that we've talked about or that we said we were going to talk about, you know, critical steps that must be followed before signing a buy-sell agreement. And I think, you know, let's see if I've got this right, the, the first critical step is look at your old agreement and do the fire drill. A picture is worth a thousand words, right? And, and see what it does, see what you like and what you don't like. And then You know, from there I would guess, you know, and then you can fill in the blanks between the two of you, that when you have the new agreement in front of you before you sign it, you do the fire drill again with the new agreement and make sure that that it did all those
0: things that we said we were going to do. No, you bet. You bet. And if you get an agreement, a draft of an agreement back that doesn't comport with what you told them you wanted then you're going to have a problem with the agreement and you probably got a problem with the lawyer.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which goes
0: back to that first, you know, when I, one of the
1: things they were talking about before is how do you know the attorney know, you know, it, that they've got their chops and that they've got it, you know, they can do this stuff. Um, and I, and I think, you know, is it fair to ask an attorney for a sample of their, a sample by sell agreement that they've written before, take the personal stuff out of it?
0: I've had people I've had people do that before and and I, I never was offended by that, but I think you do a lot better by simply asking them, because for me, and Don, I don't know how, how you feel about this, but buy sell agreements were the toughest contract to draft in my legal career because of the number of variables, I mean, you're shooting at a moving target, and you're and you've got multiple balls in the air at the same time. Yeah. So, so for for me, um, you just have to care enough to ask questions. You know, like how many? You know, how often do you deal with buy sell agreements in particular? You know, how often have you taken them from triggering event? to closing, you know, you, you get, and you start getting a, a feel for that. Now, if if the lawyer's gonna misrepresent, you know, their experience, well, um, there's very little you can do about that other than to suffer the brunt or simply go get somebody else. Fair. And one of the other
2: things is, you know, there are people out there, that don't want to pay anybody for anything. And they hear you, Michael, and they're t- you're talking about buy-sell agreements and the 10 or 12 or 15 or 20 Ds that you think need to go in there. And the guy's thinking, well, we got death and disability, wonder what else. And so he goes to the lawyer, maybe has it redrafted and it's goodwill. And he thinks, well, I got, I got 10 Ds. I used to have two, so I'm set. I would recommend that they go to the CPA and say, please read this and let me know how much I'm going to get if my partner's taken out. And he comes back with this figure and it's based on book value. Well, wait a minute, the business is worth X times more than that. Well, yeah, but it says it says book value. So that's going to give you some indication. Um, maybe you should pay somebody to do this, not just your your golfing buddy um, who happens to specialize in real estate or malpractice or whatever, and he's doing it for you as a favor. And he's telling you, look, hey, you need to go to a buy-sell special. No, 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 you're a lawyer. You know You know. know what you're doing, right, Paul? Paul, you're a lawyer. You know all about divorce. You know about environmental protection. You know about professional liability in, in, in the medical field, in the architectural field, the engineering field. You're a lawyer, right? You just know
0: this. (laughs) <laughs> and my answer is you can fit what I know about any of those subjects other than buy-sell agreements in a thimble. Yeah. So, but I think if you,
2: if you take it to the CPA and get a number from him, that may open your eyes. And then, so much of this goes back to what we've talked about over the years, and that's collaboration. Right. Let's get folks around the table. The CPA needs to be a part of the lawyer, the financial advisor, the insurance guy. The pre and C guy, what have you, and and hash this out and give you the best document to protect probably the largest asset that you have.
0: Right,
1: I have uh, one client that says the most expensive meeting I have is when I bring all of my advisors together for a couple of hours, but that expensive meeting saves me hundreds of thousands of dollars over the long run. So mm-hmm. it's you know, they're like, they hate do, they hate that meeting, but they know that every time good stuff comes out of it because of the collaboration, because if you're just looking at something from a life insurance perspective or from a, a legal perspective or an accounting perspective, something's missed and you need all of those heads at your table, you know, at least once a year, looking at your situation and saying, what am I missing, what am I not looking at? You guys talk
0: about it, you know, the bits among yourselves and figure this thing out for me right Mm -hmm. it's kind of like the old fram auto filter commercial you can pay me now or pay me later you know like (laughs) the auto repair guy used to say on the commercial my goal in a buy-sell agreement is to minimize the need for litigators yeah because when litigators get on the case the number of hours that they spend is incredible. Right. You I know, agree. I mean, that's yep. just, that's the nature of litigation today. It is just very labor intensive and that means expensive. Yeah. So right. you have to, you're really, you're really the collaborate and it goes back to collaboration too. I, uh, there's no substitute for it there's just no substitute for it because none of us has all the answers and I know damn well I don't I get
1: it yeah you know it's funny I'm thinking about the family that I'm that I'm working with right now that is going through buy sell agreements and it's going to get litigated I'm curious let me give you the, share this thought with you what if I were to go to the, the remaining family members and say, you were, you, you were planning and updating your, your buy-sell agreement, I've been asking you to, to upgrade this for you know, several years, but we've been focused on the family dynamics, and then everything blew up. What if they were to go back and say, you know what, we're gonna redo the buy-sell agreement between us right now, and we'll include the person that we pu- you know pushed out of the business in the new buy-sell agreement that's more fair doesn't that give him a shot at saving the family relationship
0: it does it it absolutely does uh because it all goes back to again fundamental fairness um it, there's just there's just little there's just little substitute for it because if your agreement is not fair you're going to pay money litigating against an unfair or litigating to defend an unfair agreement and you're going to be stuck with the words on the page that are there in your agreement and the courts are going to hold you to that right love it thank you
1: all I- right Don, take us out of here. And, uh, both of you, what I'd like you to do is, uh, if you have any uh, parting words, anything that you'd, you know, like to add to the what we've just done that we don't want to miss, um, and then tell us how people can reach you. Uh,
2: Thank you. So thanks again for bringing this together. It's been fun. I've really enjoyed it. Um, my advice to any business owner listening is to make sure you have quality advisors and. Just like Michael's client, pay to get them around the table and have them collaborate because they're working in your best interest. Everybody has a different way of thinking about certain particular issues, and it's good to have everybody talk about them and get them aired out and uh, let them look out for you. best way to reach me is um, my email, which is just my name, don.parkhill at lfg.com. I'm a member of Bluestone Wealth Partners. You can look us up on the internet. And um, my cell number is 7402020114. It's 7402020114 since I'm still um, pretty much out of the office.:
1: <laughs>
2: Agreed. Thanks man. again.: Thank you.
1: Paul.
0: Um, my f- parting words are still what I talked about earlier, which is fire drill. I, I do can't, the I can't fire.
1: How powerful that is. Don't
0: hire somebody, don't don't hire somebody to review the agreement until you've done the fire drill because the fire drill will guide you throughout the, the new buy sell process. Uh, my uh, email address is paul at paulhoodhood, H O O D services.com and my cell phone is 504. I've still got my Louisiana buy cell. I mean, my Louisiana phone number. I've had the same cell phone number uh, for over 25 years. Um, 504-452-7574.
1: Thank you very much. Um, you guys, I really appreciate you joining me today. Um, Don, you had picked up on uh, uh, our invite, had a 1 p.m. start time, and it looks like we will never make that mistake ever again. Um, You guys were awesome, really appreciate it, and uh, if anybody wants to reach out to them, definitely take them up on their uh, services and their time. Um, I'm Michael Columbus, and this was uh, the Family Biz Show. And we look forward to speaking with you and having you on in the future. If we can help you at any time, you know, just let us know. Thanks, everybody.
0: Thanks for listening to The Family Biz Show. We appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough. Add a business to that, and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with The Family Biz Show.
1: The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests, and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy LLC is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.